Hello, this is Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. And this weekend, we're celebrating the Feast of the Epiphany. An epiphany is a sudden insight. It's like the lights suddenly come on. And that's at the heart of the gospel today about the epiphany. It's about an unveiling of reality. You know, God doesn't just come into existence when Jesus is born. Jesus, the Son of uh, the Son of God, the second person, always existed. Whatever it means to be God, that is the God that is Jesus of Nazareth. But to say that the eternal God reveals himself as a human being means that the eternal has manifested itself in the temporal. And so the Jesus we know, his life begins at conception, his life on earth ends at his death. It's the resurrection that is this unveiling of the real nature of humanity. And it isn't just for the Jewish people or for the Israelites. St. Paul talks about this mystery that's been unveiled in the second reading uh, from Ephesians. And he says, it's a short reading, brothers and sisters, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for your benefit. Namely, that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. It was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and co-partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now that's a lot. The mystery made known that the Gentiles are God's people. You know, when Paul spoke those words, the world was a very different place. When you enter into the world of the New Testament, you're going to another time, another place, where people think very, very differently. And then as Paul was speaking these words about the Gentiles being co-heirs, it was in this vast abyss of paganism. St. Augustine used to say that the pagan gods, uh, Zeus and Aphrodite and Hera, Hera for the Greeks, or Saturn and Jupiter and Venus for the Romans, that in reality they were demons. And if you ever read the myths of ancient Rome, uh, their behavior is demonic. I mean, they're manipulative and evil. They are basically all the faults of human beings exploded. And so there is this huge fight going on in the ancient world of what does it mean to be God? And that's at the heart of the story of the Epiphany and this, the pilgrimage of these Magoi, these three kings that come to worship Jesus. So we're going to talk about the ancient world today, the world that Christianity was born into, with the hopes that we can recapture something of the dramatic change that this epiphany brought to the world and the constant threat the paganism i think presents uh, to the christian understanding of the world and so stay tuned sometimes after mass people say to me father we really enjoyed the history lesson 
But you know, it's, it's not a history lesson. It's scripture, and scripture is about history. When we read the New Testament, it's not a series of moral propositions. It's not an idealized, here's how you should feel about God. It's what Jesus did, what the early church did. These were deeds that were accomplished in time and in place. And so when you enter the world of the New Testament, you're entering this very different world. You know, when we think, I think sometimes when we think of the New Testament, um, we don't see it in the larger context of the first century. And one of the things that I want to point out about um, the first century is that these prophecies about a Messiah, about a king coming from Judea and exercising universal dominion, this was from ancient Hebrew scripture. This, these are the prophets of the Israelites. We talked about this all during Advent. What's interesting is how much the Romans knew about those prophecies. There are two historians, two Roman historians I want to mention, and both of them lived uh, right, were born right about the time that Peter and Paul were executed in Rome. So they were probably born in the late 60s or in the 70s. And the, the books that they wrote, Suetonius wrote uh, The Twelve Caesars, which is about the Julian-Claudian dynasty that extends from uh, Augustus Caesar uh, all the way through uh, the death of Nero. And so Suetonius wrote that probably 50 years after uh, Nero's death. Uh, Tacitus is a contemporary of uh, Suetonius, and he also wrote a broader history uh, called The Histories, which is about all the conquests of Rome. It's, uh, if you're ever a kid and you liked reading historical novels, you, you never read the romance, you love to hear the stories about armies clashing. And that's exactly the story that Tacitus tells. But it's interesting in both historians, they pick up in both the 12 Caesars and the history, um, this prophecy about a king coming from Judea. And so Suetonius, in his book, The 12 Caesars, which is the story of the, the 12 emperors from Augustus to Nero, he talked about of the great Jewish war which occurred in the 60s. Do you remember Jesus' prophecy about the temple, not a stone left upon a stone? Uh, that prophecy was fulfilled in the late 60s, about 30 plus years after Jesus' execution and resurrection, when the uh, Roman legions, uh, initially under Vespasian and then Titus, uh, invaded and surrounded Jerusalem. Uh, they pulled down the walls, destroyed the temple, renamed the city from Jerusalem to Capitolina, and um, took back over the fort where Jesus had been tried, the Antonia, which uh, was, uh, interestingly enough, named after Mark Anthony. So lots of Roman history here. But here's what Suetonius says about this idea that there would be this king that came from Judea. So this is a quote. A firm persuasion had long prevailed through all the East that it was fated for the empire of the world at that time to devolve on some who should go forth from Judea. 
This prediction referred to a Roman emperor as the events showed, but the Jews, applying it to themselves, broke out into rebellion, and having defeated and slain their governor, routed the lieutenant of Syria, a man of consular rank, who was advancing to his assistance, and took an eagle, the standard of one of his legions. So that's Suetonius recounting the beginning of the great Jewish war in the 60s. And he's referring to these messianic ambitions because Jesus was not the only figure in that first and, as it turns out, the second century uh, uh, AD that uh, their followers thought he was the Messiah. It's Jesus' a messianic legacy that's with us 2,000 years later. And it's so much because of what happened in history. But I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. It's more than just Christianity became the dominant religion in the Western world. There, there is one other aspect of it that's so obvious, but you need to consider it. So Suetonius told his version of what the Messianic prophecy was. Turns out, according to the Romans, it really wasn't about a Jewish Messiah. It was about Vespasian and Titus, who defeated the Jews in the field and later at, uh, uh, destroyed all their, all their uh, forts um, and armies and enslaved hundreds of thousands of Jews. But that the king that came out of Judea were these emperors that followed the Julian and Claudian dynasty. Tacitus, who's writing about the same time as Suetonius, has a similar story. He tells this in his book, The Histories, and here's what he said. Prodigies had occurred, which this nation, he's referring to Judea, prone to superstition, but hating all religious rites, did not deem it lawful to expiate by offering and sacrifice. There had been seen hosts joining battle in the skies, the fiery gleams of arms, the temple illuminated by a sudden radiance from the clouds. The doors of the inner shrine were suddenly thrown open, and a voice of more than mortal tone was heard to cry that the gods were departing. At the same instance, there was a mighty stir as of departure. Some few put a fearful meaning on these events, but in most there was a firm persuasion that in the ancient records of their priests were contained a prediction of how at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. These mysterious prophecies had pointed to Vespasian and Titus, but the common people, with the usual blindness of ambition, had interpreted these mighty destinies of themselves and could not be brought, even by disasters, to believe the truth. So, there's two Roman versions of the history that you and I know. Battles in the sky, doesn't it sound like the book of Revelation? God's departing the temple, doesn't it sound like Jewish prophecy? Because it's all coming through the Romans in this distorted way. They apparently had no real access uh, to the Hebrew scriptures, although they had been translated into Greek in the Septuagint. And so it's this kind of uh, distorted view of the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. You know what's interesting is the gospel today talks about the star. Remember, it's the star that lead 
the Magoi, the Magi, uh, to where the Christ child is. Did you know that Suetonius, I think it is in Tacitus, uh, recount the history that occurred about 135 AD, and it was the last of the great Jewish messianic rebellions uh, led by a man named Bar Kokhba. Kokhba is a word that translated means star. And so literally the last messianic um, uprising in uh, Israel and Palestine in 135 around there uh, was led by a man known as Son of the Star. I suggest to you that he took that name uh, understanding very well the, the linkage between the star and the Messiah. And so now we've listened to this Roman version. Here's what I'd like you to think. You know, you can tell history in two different ways. One is the accountant's version of history. One is the poet's version of history. The accountant's version of history is just names and dates, orders were issued, this guy was governor, that guy was governor. It's usually what bore students to tears about history because it just something necessary about the human story escapes reducing history to the accountant's version. I at one point read a lot of Civil War history. In my 20s and 30s, I was very interested. And I'd read U.S. Grant's biography that had been ghostwritten by Mark Twain. Wow, Mark Twain wrote an amazing book. If you ever get a chance, you want to read the one book you should read about the Civil War, read U.S. Grant's biography. It's just so interesting. Because it was such a fun read, I then picked up the book about William Tecumseh Sher Sherman, uh, his, his history. And talk, boy, talk about an accountant. That, I don't think I got a third of the way through that book. And it was just so boring because all it was was copies of field orders he had given uh, in laying out just in serial fashion. I did this, I did that, I sent this order, I talked to this guy. It was really tedious. Here's the second version of history. It's the accountant's, it's not the accountant's version of history. It's the poet's version of history. How you tell a story and how you tell why the story's important. And so another book I read about the Civil War is Michael Sharwa's The Killer Angels, which was about the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, there's great history in there. What Sharwa said really did happen, but it was told in such a poetic way where everything was put into its proper place. And so the story was this tragic human story. Shelby Foote and the stars in their courses is another example of taking history, but telling it uh, in a way that it just brings this level of understanding and beauty to the telling of the story. So here's what I want to suggest to you, that the story told in the Gospel of Matthew about the Magi coming is not the accountant's view of history. No, there is history underlying this. These things probably occurred, did occur. But the poet's version always is a bigger version because it's about why it makes a difference. Now, what I just said about the accountant and the poet, let's talk about that in the story of the Magi. Star for your beauty bright 
So the story of the three kings, the Magi, you know, it's interesting, Magi, it's where we get the word magic. And it's why really what the scriptures say, it's three, it's wise men. It doesn't even say what the number is. Um, it, it doesn't say that they're not kings, but it doesn't say that they are kings. In fact, uh, there is so much Christian custom piled on this scripture that you have to read the text carefully to understand what was being said in that, uh, in that first century. That's part of why I say is separating the poetic from the accountant's version, because both of them have, have a reality into it. And so Israel had a king, he was Herod. Interestingly, he was a puppet king. He'd been installed by Pompey uh, during a, uh, just before, I think, the big civil war uh, in, within Rome. And uh, it was his father installed by Pompey. But the point is he was a Roman puppet king. He ruled because Rome allowed him to rule. And what's interesting about him, he wasn't even Jewish. He was a convert to Judaism. He was an Idominian who are, if you remember in the Old Testament, the Edomites were the great enemy of Israel. Well, Herod is an Edomite. He had originally gotten involved in the, uh, the Maccabean dynasty, which was ruling Israel at the time that the Romans took over. He usurped the last of the Maccabean kings, who actually were Jewish, and then cut a deal with the Romans, or his dad did. And that's how he became king of Israel. So everybody knew he was a big phony, because he was a big phony. But he went through what he had to do to be uh, a Jew so he could be king of Israel. But apparently none of it ever set in. And so he recognized that he was on very shaky ground. He murdered a wife, a couple of his sons. Augustus Caesar said, playing on the word in Greek for pig, that it was safer to be Herod's uh, pig than his son uh, because he seemed to be so murderous when it came to his sons. Well, what happened was that these Magi went to Herod's court. And you've heard the story. And what they heard was the prophecy from Micah chapter 5, that the Messiah was going to come out of Bethlehem. Why? Because Bethlehem was the hometown of King David. That's where he was found by the prophet Samuel uh, and anointed king over Israel. So in Micah's telling of the story of the Messiah that was coming, he would come out of Bethlehem. But you remember Joseph and Mary uh, were probably from Nazareth because that's where Jesus was actually raised up, even though Joseph was of the house of David. So these are about Jesus's messianic credentials in a genealogical sense. But uh, he's born physically into a woman's family who was probably from the priestly class, and that's Mary. Remember her cousin is Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's husband is Zechariah. They're both Levites. So if Mary is cousin to someone who married a Levite, could be more possibly that Mary belonged to the Levite tribe. But, you know, that's the accountant's version of history. And so in the Micah prophecy about Bethlehem Ephrata, this is what the Magi are told. And so 
they follow this star. Why is the star there? Well, if you go to the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 15, and that's part of the Torah, it would say this, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open. Skip a couple verses. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. So that's a prophecy from the book of Numbers. Now, Herod is an Edomite. He's an Idumenian. When he reads Numbers 24, 15, why do you think he's concerned? It could be this last line, Edom shall be dispossessed. Isn't that interesting how all this lines up? And so the part here is about the star. So if you were to get directions to a friend's house for a New Year's Eve party, and they tell you, oh, just find Polaris, the North Star, and we're right under there. What the heck would that mean to you? Zero point squad. And so the early church fathers did not think that this was a natural phenomenon. You know, in the ancient world, there were big debates about stars. And one of the reasons was that I believe it's in Aristotelian categories. If something moves, that's the standard for whether it's alive or not. And since stars moved in the sky, there was an argument about whether or not they were living beings. And so that is at least a, a peak into some of the aspects of first century thought. So the, some of the early church fathers who were closer to that culture than us didn't think it was a constellation. Though some modern astronomers who are interested in, in uh, biblical stories say, well, maybe it was just the lineup of stars and planets uh, in, in the house of uh, the constellation that represented Israel. Okay, that could be. But the early church fathers thought it was a purely supernatural event, that it was an angel that led by a light that literally went over the house where Jesus was. We well, you know, and what I think about all of that is if you believe in the resurrection that someone rises from the dead and that this is God's plan to bring the Gentiles in as co-heirs, um, well, you ought at least be open to the possibility that that's actually the way that you would resolve this. So it wouldn't be something we would think of as a natural event. Does the scripture solve the problem for us? It doesn't even try to. But the Magi, and there, there is no number that's given, the Magi uh, come to, um, to, to uh, Bethlehem and just think about what's said about them. They come, it doesn't say what they're writing. It does say that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then they worshiped. Well, you only worship God. You can venerate a saint like Mary, but worship, they offer, they make a sacrifice, and they bow down before Jesus in, in this story because it's a visual prophecy of what the Gentiles, east, west, north, and south, will do. And so, do you remember how we have all of these stories about there's always a camel, a camel rather, and we have the names Caspar, Melchior, and Balthasar? None of that's in scripture, but it is later Christian tradition about all of this. But it's not that it doesn't have biblical resonances. Did you notice in the first reading from Isaiah, it said that uh, 
that nations shall walk by your light. There's the star. Kings by your shining radiance. It doesn't say Magi. It says kings. And then it says caravans of camels shall fill you. Dromedaries from Midian and Ephah. All from Sheba shall come, bearing gold and frankincense and proclaiming the praises of the Lord. So this is about the Gentiles coming to Israel. It is an actual prophecy from Isaiah, uh, six centuries before uh, Jesus is born. But it's not exactly the stories that's told in the Gospel of Matthew. First, he never mentions camels. He never says they're from Midian and Ephah. Midian was one of Abraham's sons by a concubine. And Ephah is the son of Midian. And Midian is an area in what we think of as modern Saudi Arabia. So it's really to the south of Israel, not to the east. So what I ask, and it's just a question, if what Matthew is doing was going back to these old prophecies and just copying a story out of them, well, why didn't he have them coming from Midian and Aphah if he's just making it up? Why didn't he have them come from Sheba? Um, why did he add the gift of myrrh? Thomas Aquinas would say, gold for a king, frankincense for God, myrrh for death, that the three gifts have this meaning to them. But if Matthew is just pulling this prophecy out and tell, making up a story, how come nobody calls him on it? Because there is nothing um, that is exactly the same as what the prophecies were in Numbers. But it's interesting, isn't it? In Isaiah, Numbers, and Micah, all these stories that come together in this prophecy about the three kings. And so I like to pull this all together uh, with the impact this actually had on the world and why this is a very important story. Born again on Bethlehem's plain, cold I bring to ground him again, king forever, facing So bringing this to a close, Paul, in the second reading at Mass today, talked about this mystery that had been revealed, that the Gentiles were co-heirs with Israel as people of God. You know, Suetonius and Tacitus uh, tried to understand the Jewish people, and if you, if you read their books, especially Tacitus, where he tries to go through the history of it, knowing what you know about the people of Israel, you can see how it's represented in this uh, story he tells about Israel in a very distorted way because he's not very sympathetic to them. At one point, here's what he says about when they came out of Egypt. The Egyptians worshiped many animals and images of monstrous form. The Jews have purely mental conceptions of deity as one in essence. They call those profane who make representations of God in human shape out of perishable materials. They believe that being to be supreme and eternal, neither capable of representation nor of decay. They therefore do not allow any images to stand in their cities, much less in their temples. The Jewish religion, he concludes, is, and I quote, tasteless and mean, end quote. Well, I guess if you're a Roman, and you love these big marble statues of gods, mostly naked, the idea that there is, you cannot represent God in any material fashion must have been shocking. 
But doesn't it make you think something different about the meaning of the gospel and the revelation? You see, the Jews didn't believe that you could carve a marble statue of God. God, on the other hand, the Father, makes the image of himself in his Son. It means the Word made present in the incarnation of Christ. And so that we don't make an image of Christ. God himself gives us his own image, his own face in human terms. When you and I do art icons or statues of Jesus, uh, we are just remembering and making present uh, the incarnation, the fact that God became a human being. But we don't make uh, statues of Saturn or Jupiter or Zeus or Aphrodite or Venus or Poseidon or any of these other uh, gods. Why? Because the kingdom of God, when revealed according to Paul, destroyed the pagan temples. Within three to 400 years, paganism was just dead. I mean, it had reigned supreme in the Mediterranean world for millennia. It goes back, the modern anthropologists think, to the Vedic religions out of India. But Christianity evaporated it. Judeo-Christianity evaporated it in the space of a couple of hundred years. You know, it doesn't mean that human beings don't continue to worship as their idols, the same things that the Romans and the Greeks worshiped. Because you can take most of the pagan gods and you can squeeze them into love of power, love of money, love of sex. You know, there's some fertility gods, gods about agriculture and all of that. But nobody prays to them anymore. Everybody struggles to understand this Jewish understanding of God that was unveiled to the Magi, the wise. Um, and remember what it says at the end, that at the end they were uh, warned not to go back by way of Herod, so they left by another way. And it's been said before that when you meet Christ, you cannot leave unchanged. And it goes for us individuals, and it goes for the entire world. So the Magi, the unveiling, the revealing, the uh, pulling back of the curtain that separates us from God, which is remembered at the Epiphany, is what utterly changes the world. And for the last 2,000 years, Christianity and these pagan impulses in humanity have been struggling for the soul of the world. And it probably will be to the end of time. But you just have to think with confidence of the Paul who stood there as this little stubby man in the midst of the Roman Empire and said that everything had changed, the mystery was unveiled, the Gentiles are called, and then look at what's happened ever since over the last 2,000 years that we're part of it all. And so, happy Feast of the Epiphany, Happy New Year. And until next week, this has been Oro Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold. Westward.